0: Great to be back. Uh, last weekend, I was in Honduras and Guatemala. I got to preach in both uh, those countries in two different settings in Honduras and then in Guatemala in one of the churches that uh, we uh, reach or actually support there, the church we did our medical uh, work in. And the Lord was very gracious, had a very fruitful uh, time of ministry, a lot of fruitful connections, uh, was connecting with a guy named Pastor Angel, uh, doing a great work in Guatemala City, has an institute, uh, reaching out to the other pastors, and so it was a very fruitful trip it 's nice to be back it 's nice to preach in english it 's a little bit easier for me at times i can 't blame my inability with the language uh, for how bad I preach, so what is blame it on the weather, whatever you want to do. Uh, you can take it. but uh, we 're back in second Peter. Uh, we 've been working through both the books, and I want to remind us of what uh, his whole premise is, and it 's a grounded faith. He starts with first Peter and it 's uh, comfort in the faith. Second Peter, he's dealing with the caution. And this morning we're diving in and he he turns a corner here uh, looking at the truths about false teachers. And we're going to be hitting on this topic for almost the rest of the book. And it's all been building this as a caution about the lies that are going to come in there. I don't know, um, kind of as an introduction, I was thinking about this idea of of going on the offensive or defensive and combining the two. But I don't know if you've ever driven in New York City And if you drive in New York City, if you drive defensively, you may avoid an accident, but you're not going to move that far down the road. Uh, Because in New York City, you need to have uh, your defenses up while you drive what I call offensively. Uh, Then you get through town without scratches and dents. And the reason I thought of that was (coughs) we're in Guatemala City. And, and we had a driver, two different drivers. One is a gentleman we work with, Estuardo. He's a 62-year-old business person, and he definitely drives defensively. Uh, he moves through, we're making uh, progress. And then he had to go to work, and so he had a, a guy he, he works with at times, 32-year-old Jose, took over uh, behind the wheel. And, and I would say this, he captures that style. He was a very skilled operator. He's highly aware and protective of the vehicle because it wasn't his Um, but he moved aggressively through overcrowded roads, and I'll be honest, very complicated mergers. Like Sometimes I'm like, are we supposed to be merging here? I I just stopped looking side to side and just looked straight ahead. One, I get car sick. Two, the windows were tinted so much I thought it was nighttime, and then really the main reason is I think I'm going to die most of the time while driving, and so uh, he moved, but what was interesting to me was he was very defensive (coughs) in that He's not going to let the car be touched or scratched or moved, but he moves with a certain confidence and I almost say aggressiveness so that doesn't describe it. It's this on the offensive, he's moving in. He went on the offensive and moving us around the city and he wasn't timid at all. I say that because I want us to catch that mindset. This is not recklessness, but Peter is moving on the offensive. He's not timid. He is aggressively pursuing this. He shifts in his letter chapter one there 's a lot of a lot of defense, not in a, in a sit back way, but he 's building a foundation uh, and he shifts now from a defense of the faith to an aware yet aggressive offense. Defense is critical, but this situation called for forward progress, so he 's no longer making his defense he 's no longer saying we 're built on this, and this is salvation and this is god 's word, but he 's now poignantly or very specifically pushing against false teachers, because he wants the church to be aware of certain truths about false teachers. And we're going to touch on these uh, with realities, I call them. And they're, they're very simple, but it's important that they stay in our mind. So the letter moves, and I want us to remember where we came from. Two weeks ago, we're in chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and he's really hammering the idea of the sure word, God's word, That's what 1, 16 to 21 is, and he's building on that foundation. And now he moves from the sure word to expose the shifty word of deception. He is warning, and let's be honest, exposing the lies propagated by wolves in sheep's clothing. And he's saying these wolves aren't just there. These wolves are howling. They're talking, they're speaking, they're making known. And so as Peter begins his offensive, he wants us to grasp the first truth about false teachers, and that is the reality of false teachers. And I said these are very simple points, but Peter wants us to be aware of it, as in always aware 24-7. Look at the first part of chapter 1, or verse 1 of chapter 2. "...but there were false prophets also among the people." And Peter's writing, here's a Jew, what he's talking about is in Israel, in the Old Testament, there were false prophets. And let's be honest, when Jesus was on earth, there was a host of other false prophets. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were also false prophets. They taught a lot of truth, but it was tainted with lies and, and distorted. So there's always been these false prophets among the people, among the nation of Israel, even as there shall be false teachers among you, and he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, In the Old Testament, the false prophets were those who falsely claimed to be prophets and prophesied false things, Uh, individuals as green notes who were as untrustworthy as the message they gave. Peter identifies, so kind of connect to those false lying prophets, and as you read through Uh, the Old Testament, you encounter them. God exposes them uh, for the people. Peter identifies the false teachers attacking the church with those characters from the Old Testament. Teachers who did not speak with divine authority, teachers who spoke of a false peace, teachers condemned by God. Their words flattered so they could grow their finances. Their lives lacked restraint. They engaged in any pleasure they wanted. Their consciences were dull to true conviction, and they were teaching things that resulted in ultimate deception. Jesus warned of the same when he walked this earth. Matthew 24, 4 through 5 says this, and Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ and shall deceive many. In other words, Christ warned and Peter is building on that warning for the church. People are going to try to trick God's people. People are going to try to trick the world into following something that is not true. Uh, These false teachers can crop up seemingly anywhere. I think I've shared this before uh, around Christmas time, but at Christmas I read an article which was written by, it was a magazine just kind of reviewing how hard it is for churches to have Sunday worship on Christmas Day, and they interviewed a famous pastor. Uh, he's a man that has, uh, I think, 8,000 people in his church, multiple campuses, you name it. He's got all the, the hype that could be there. And this pastor uh, typically would, would stand on the conservative side, would, would say he preaches God's Word, but he ended up twisting God's healing on the Sabbath to justify not worshiping on Christmas Day Sunday while still attempting to affirm the importance of Sunday worship. And I want you to catch a grip of what he's doing. And and actually, he'll go a little bit further because he'll start off talking about how Jesus healed on the Sabbath and the Pharisees, those horrible legalists, condemned him for it. And he twists scripture and then he'll say, and that's why our church doesn't hold worship on Sunday. We don't want to be legalistic. And I want you to see how he's, he's name-calling or alienating anyone who'd be against him. And then he gets all the way to, I don't feel like coming to church on Sunday, nor to my 8,000 people, so let's not. And then he goes on to affirm Sunday worship. And I want you to see what he does. He tries to isolate anyone who'd be against him, speaks a lie cloaked in truth. And we'll actually talk about that later. Something we need to see. I say that because here is a person who is typically known to preach the gospel, to preach truth, to be a a conservative preacher of God's word. There's not someone wandering off into society. And how did he do it? By making scripture fit his population and priority by linking anyone who disagreed with him to legalism. And here's the fact, false teachers are certain. There will be many false teachers. That's what Peter wants us to be aware of. As a church, he wants to, to grab our shoulders and shake us and say, be aware of this. Deceit will be propagated. We might say, well, we want to eradicate any deceit that could come in. Peter says, you're not going to eradicate any deceit that comes in. There will be many false teachers, and they will surface in many different ways. I think when I think of false teachers, I think of the fanatical cult leaders, right? They end up, when I was growing up, it was David Koresh down in Waco, Texas, um, and then you think of, I think it's Jerry Jones. I don't know if I'm getting that right. Maybe it's the Dallas Cowboy owner. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> he sounds like a false teacher to me anyway, so I will just throw that in there. Uh, but there's a host of them, right? We think of the fanatics, right? That get their following and, and they, they're just crazy. Uh, those cult leaders are actually easier to spot and avoid. The gravest everyday danger are those respected teachers in the church who typically teach true doctrine, but also. Cleverly include false teaching with it. I would say when you're reading Peter on the false teachers, and I for years I would read it and I always thought about the fanatics, the crazies, the loony bins that are easy to see, and and they get a following, but they get a certain segment of people that follow, and everyone kind of knows. And and we see that there's people who gain millions of followers, but we can identify them easily. The real danger, the gravest, is the everyday teacher that usually speaks truth that now cleverly weaves in the lie. We need to recognize the reality of false teachers, yet also recognize that false teachers are not just crazy cult leaders that we see and read about in the news. We need to realize that false teachers will sadly crop up among formerly trustworthy writers and preachers. They'll come up possibly from people we've trusted. I had this happen. There's someone I read, trusted, and valued. Um, never met him really, but I, I read a lot of what he wrote. And it doesn't mean that everything he wrote is garbage, but he actually engaged in false teaching. I don't think he did it on purpose. I don't think he's unsafe, but that false teaching cropped up, and the audience that he had could get swayed or pulled into that. I think a lot of us here have had in the last couple years, the disappointments of people we trust and read and and learn from doing things that expose them as actually teaching a falsehood. And here's the reality. If they carry that false teaching all the way out, it ends in ultimate destruction. So the reality of false teaching and false teachers should drive us to be constantly discerning, to be ready and never lulled to sleep to know God's Word clearly and deeply. And I I just want to mention this. the end of the sermon, my last question is that. Do you know God's Word clearly and deeply? Do you have a profound knowledge of God's Word? Because what Peter is driving us to is to know what God says and know it so well that a false teacher will be exposed. Because with the reality of false teachers comes the second reality, the reality of false teaching, Uh, False teachers don't exist in a vacuum or bubble. Instead, it says they exist among the people and they pollute those people with lies. So it continues in verse 1. It says, Who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord. And that word for Lord, and I'll talk about it later in Greek, is master. So it's that actual he is Lord, he is ruler, he is the master and Paul refers to himself as a doulos, a slave, and so we understand he is our master and we are his servants or slaves, and that's the word there. He is the master, so they deny him as master, the master that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now, people get into the weeds quickly on people who bring swift destruction on The Lord who has bought them, and and they kind of go way too far with what Peter's saying and talk about losing your salvation, which is a total misapplication of that verse. What it's saying is that people go so far, as we stand in church, we understand that our Lord bought us, that He paid the price, and that He therefore is our Master. He is our Lord, and there's people that are going to deny that reality. It's not speaking of them losing their salvation, actually, it's pointing to the fact that they were never saved. Um, Peter makes clear. Uh, the process that they take, the false teachers, along with the ultimate outcome of those carrying and living false teaching to its fullest extent, they'll deny God's authority. And by authority, which we talked about two weeks ago, when we look at God's word and we say God's word is authoritative, and you might say to me, Kenny, God's word is authoritative. It's not if you don't read it and you don't follow it because then it's not authoritative. You might say it is, but you don't really believe it is because you don't follow what God's word says. And so I just want you to get a hint. We go from the sure authoritative word and we're moving into false teaching. And right away, we're now denying, these teachers are denying God's authority. Peter though begins with his process and he shows how they teach. And the first thing is he shows that they're secretive. The word privily means secretive. That teaching is not transparent. There is a hidden agenda. I'm gonna go back to that illustration I started with the pastor justifying not worshiping on Christmas Sunday because of the inconvenience of coming to church on the day we celebrate Jesus' birth. Sorry to re-preach December and and make that hint there. I know it's hard. You have 11 years before you can redeem yourself if you skip church, but I'm just throwing that out there so you're ready for it, uh, because that's the logic behind it, right? I don't feel like coming to church on Sunday. I've done a bunch of other things, and I don't want to do it this Sunday, and it's the Lord's day we celebrate his birth, but I don't want to worship him on that day. That's where we're at, the inconvenience. What does he do well. The man began by charging, uh, but with a charge not to be legalist. So he found a target. What does false teaching do? Let me isolate anyone who would disagree with me and make sure they're labeled as something. Ah, you're a legalist. If you disagree with me, you must be a legalist. Then he grabs hold of Christ's miracle on the Sabbath and he misapplies it. So he takes he takes what really happened and he twists. It around and then cloaked it in an affirmation of worship on Sunday. Truth, you see how he tucked secretly, non-transparently his lie in there. I have zero respect for those kind of people. I would rather someone stand up and say, "I don't want to come to church on Sunday because it's inconvenient." Now that would be a truth, though the wrong thing to do. At least they wouldn't be lying. That's not how false teachers work. They're never going to be so blunt as to tell you, "I'm a big liar." I'm lying right now. No liar says, I'm a liar. Let's talk, right? That's not how it works. Instead, they build this whole story around it. Their teaching is sneaky. It worms its way into your mind because it cloaks itself in half-truths or pre-villainizes anyone that would dare question their motive or teaching. No one could ask this guy a question. Well, don't you think you should worship on Sunday? Well, I wouldn't want to be a legalist, right? You see how he set himself up to buffer against it. Now, I'm taking a very simple, something that's already happened, Sunday worship question on Christmas Day. Now, take that same methodology and dump it in a thousand different categories, and you see how sneaky false teaching is, how it's going to worm its way in. It's going to be from somebody that you trust. It's going to have truth all around it, so you're wondering, oh, is this really? Well, maybe that's truth and there's truth, and I shouldn't question it, so it, it's sneaky. It weaves its way in, and what they teach, and this is something we need to recognize, it's secretive, but it's destructive. I think we're too casual about false teaching. I, I think we're too easy on people we've trusted when they slip up. They have a big audience. And we're like, "Well, they messed up a little bit. I think that, I'm not saying you throw everything out they've taught, but there's a huge caution flag that goes up because... Understand this, if it's incorrect, false teaching, I don't care what their motive is, it's destructive. Peter says this, it's damning to the teacher and follower. What do they proclaim? They proclaim heresies. Heresies are defined by vines as an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, which is substituted for submission to the power of truth and leads to division and the formation of sex. Cults, he's saying. I add to that, be aware, more of us have fallen into cults of false theology than we would care to admit. Pockets of lies that permit us to ignore conviction and live our way instead of exclusively living God's way. You think, oh, Kenny, I'm not believing false theology. Well, what do you tell yourself? How, and this is something I hope we can realize, we're to watch out for false teachers, but one of the worst false teachers you're going to encounter is potentially yourself, Because you tell yourself a lie that you think, you know what? That's fine. My lifestyle demands this decision. My career demands this movement. This is okay for me. You'll almost teach something else, but you'll live out the opposite of that. And what you'll see is you're driven to this idea that we're engaged in more cults than we imagine. A sect is not always found on the pages of a book about cults. It's found too often in seed form in our hearts. Now, all of these heresies lead ultimately to utter ruin. I think I've said that a couple times. If you follow false teaching to the end, no matter who it starts from and however small it is, it will ultimately result in ruin because they're teaching a lie. So it doesn't lead to truth. Lies never take us to truth. They never put us on the narrow way. And thus it leads to ultimate eternal destruction, a destruction that in God's timetable is swift, we read the word swift and we think lightning's coming down, right? They're going to say this, and bam, God's going to fry them because that's our timetable. What to realize is that the destruction is swift in the timetable of God, who one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Their destruction is swift; it's 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 imminent. We're going to look at the rest of chapter 2 next week, and I call that the rescue and wrath of God. And you'll realize that God's wrath sits over false teaching and how he will rescue his own, but his wrath rests on those who preach and teach it. Because as we see from Peter, the specific false teachers plugging the church in that moment in Asia Minor, and to be honest, the same type continue to plague the church today. We're engaged in complete sacrilege. It says they denied Jesus Christ as Lord. And the Greek word, as I said here, points specifically to his role as master. And and, and you go ahead, take the context that you're thinking of. They are master as in full, 100% submission and obedience as given to the master. No one else questions that. And so these false teachers, their teaching is sacrilege because they deny him as Lord or master, I want you to understand what that means. When you deny him as Lord and master, it means that you deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. You deny his authority and rule in your life. In other words, they refuse to completely submit to him. This denial is fixated in self-autonomy or self-rule. What does that mean? indicate. It means that you don't give 100% submission to the true master because you want to be your own master. You want to have authority in some way, shape, or form. God never apologizes for this. He is the 100% authority. He doesn't share that with you. He alone, you submit. There's no ifs, ands, buts. Now, in our culture, in our life, because we, we deal with so many people that That want to have some control. Right now, we have a very uh, heavy dose of me culture. And so sometimes we tend to want to blend and move it, and we are just false teachers when we do that. God leaves no room for your authority. He is king, and you are not. We will reign with Him in eternity, and that's His gift to us. But here on earth, we submit to Him completely. When we reign with Him, we still submit to Him completely. I want us to understand something crucial. Salvation is a response of submission to God and to his way of salvation. It's not just a knowledge of it. You can know about Jesus Christ and you can know what it means to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but God doesn't just ask for knowledge. I I quote, I think, the second scariest verse in Scripture. Matthew, I think, Cloak's the one that's most scary. Many will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. I think that's the scariest verses in all of God's word. Second comes close to it, James. It says, the devils believe and tremble, and they're sent to hell. Why? They have a knowledge of God's salvation. They have never submitted to the authority of it. We're called to repent and believe a command to bend the knee and heart to his rule and perspective, to see ourselves as Christ or God sees us and respond biblically. How does God see us? We're sinful. We're in need of salvation. We bring nothing to the table. And so you understand what they're denying ultimately You say, oh, they just want to have some authority on their own. Don't be so picky, Kenny. Give them some. Give them 5%. That's all they're asking for. What they're undermining is all of salvation because salvation is submission. It is us being confronted with our sin and recognizing that my perspective about me is inaccurate, that I am not worth anything, that I am, as Isaiah says, filthy rags, and so we see ourselves as God sees us and we respond biblically as God tells us to respond. It is obedient action, not just words. You can say all you want that you're committed to Christ. He says it's action. Matthew seven twenty one says this, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Don't miss this obedient doing submission to Him. We don't get to go to God and say, hey, I'll I'll grab you as my get-out-of-hell-free card, and that's good, but don't get involved in my life. And I know no one words it that way, but that's how their actions or their theology plays out. False teachers denied God's authority. His authority is 100%. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you submit to Him completely, it is God's perspective and it's salvation God's way. No twist or turn to it. James 122 states, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Do obedience. Take that action. God has been clear from, from the get-go. He's worded it. It's not the words that you say, it is the true heart backing behind that that he is looking for submission. False teachers give false teaching, teaching that lacks transparency, that shifts away from God's truth. It is teaching that destroys, it does not edify or help, teaching that often ends in complete sacrilege, sacrilege that denies Christ's rule in and over our lives, a sacrilege into which it is quite easy to fall, especially given our society propensities and priorities. I see in myself that rebellious spirit, the tendency to hold back to something, to to resist his authority, because that's ultimately what we wrestle with. Mankind fell into sin, tempted by Satan. Satan fell from heaven because of his pride. His pride was, I don't want to submit to God. I want to rule myself. I want to be worshipped. And so he's cast out of heaven, host of angels with him. Here we sit. What is our problem today? What do people say? We grate under this idea of ultimate authority. When we talk to people about sin, where, where does sin have its compass? How do we know something is sin? It's compared to a holy God. The world has resisted the idea of sin because they do not want to have Christ as the compass, they don't want holiness to be the center. This is the battle the world faces. And now imagine here you are in a church and Peter is saying there's people walking in and they're denying the authority of Christ, that Christ has a say over your life. Beyond that, not just a say, Christ has all the say over your life. And then we think about how we live out our life and how often we rebel against his authority and we push back because we've given enough, we've ministered enough, we've done enough. And sadly, we are just echoing the false teaching that Peter is talking about because he is the ultimate authority and the world rebels against that. And then we fall into the trap of denying his complete right over us, which ultimately denies his authority and ultimately denies his salvation. Because as we can sadly see, the reality of false teachers and teaching carries us to the reality of false followers. It says here in uh, verse 2, and many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. And there's three main things to look out. First and foremost, and I think this word is, is, should sadden our hearts, many shall follow. Sadly, there'll be a host of people drawn into the false teaching. Here's another sad truth that that is related to Timothy by Paul in second Timothy four two through four and the truth is, where do these false teachers come from? They come from us. they come from our own lack of submission. Uh, Preach the word, he says to Timothy, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now the nominal church, which is the church that gathers but doesn't really believe, will desire and seek to have lies taught them, to have teaching that makes them feel good about themselves, to follow fables. And I don't typically name a bunch of people, and I won't necessarily do that today, but there's a host of pastors with a huge following, and people come there, and they feel great after they hear the message. And I'm not saying we're a spit and holler, yell at you, and try to make you feel horrible, but if you go to church and all that is affirmed to you is the sin that you're doing, uh, you're at the wrong place. But they choose those people. They want them. Why is there 15 million people listening to that or whatever it is, or 15,000 on a Sunday at one place? Because they're drawn to it. They like it because they have the itchy ears and they want to bring them in. They're drawn, the many are drawn by the pernicious ways of false teachers. And pernicious is an old word that means sensuality. They're attracted by the sensuality of those false teachers. What does that mean? They're attracted because there's immorality in their lives. There's an indulgent lifestyle. There's unrestrained engagement in pleasure. That's how false teachers live. And and the many, why are we drawn to it? Well, we like the false teaching because the false teaching gives us permission to do what we want our way. I'm not saying every false teacher takes it to the extreme that they're all immoral, though a host of them seem to be. It's that they're, they're, they're able to do what they want. And so many, the people who are false followers, they're drawn to the permission to do what I want. The false teaching is doubly exposed in the shamelessness, excessive, unbridled desires of the false teachers, and it pulls in false followers. If that teaching allows me to do whatever I want, then I'd like to be that type of believer. I want to be that Christian And sadly, this many should break believers' hearts and prod them forward to aggressively seek and serve God's redemptive purpose. Because we know as true believers that there is no other way, that there is no deviation, that there is no option. As a true believer, if you're sitting here, you say, well, what do I do? I understand, Kenny, I need to know God's word and be discerning so I don't get duped by false teaching. And then on top of that, you should have a burning passion to preach God's gospel Preach the truth out there because you watch people believing something and it should prod us forward like Paul did, praying for the nation of Israel, that he could reach them. And anyway, he asked for God to condemn his soul in the hopes of reaching Israel. That's not something that can be done. But his heart was, that was the passion of the fire burning in his heart. And you have to ask ourselves, as we watch a deceived people, our people, as we watch them being swayed, do we have the same passion to reach them? As a result of the following, well, the testimony of Christ is maligned. It's slandered, it's defamed, it's blasphemed. Lensky notes this, true Christianity is blasphemed, reviled, cursed, condemned by outsiders who see professed Christians running in all manner of excesses. I want us to take a deep dive into our individual lives, examine the church deeply, and look into the lifestyle of its individuals. Isn't it lovely when you stand up here and you cast a broad net and you're like, well, he's getting me, but he's getting somebody else too. This is a not looking at somebody else. It's getting down to the individual. Look at lifestyles, habits, and priorities that are false and that they do not align with God's word and his priorities resulting in a destroyed testimony of and for Christ. And what am I trying to say? Because we're, we're coming to this idea of false teachers, and what is convenient for us is to isolate false teachers and say, well, I would never follow them. They're bad people. But I'm good people. They're bad. I'm good. And so I can isolate them in a box. And what I want you to understand, and as we talked about, is how often we as a church become the false teachers. What am I trying to say? Our lies confirm how we have believed false teachers, and the net result is God's name dragged through the mud, and we are to blame for it. Your deception defames Christ. Peter makes really clear, not only did you destroy your own life by following false teaching, you undermine the testimony of Christ. You defame his name. What is the application? And I listed a few things. We're here, so it's nice for me to throw out a bunch of things from Monday through Saturday, but I'm going to take a look at today, how you really are and how you act. Look at how you worship. Do you fervently sing? God is clear. He is glorified and honored by our worship, by our singing. Do you sing or do you, as I put, grump your way through it? Hmm. Or do you giggle and talk your way through it? Is it a chance to walk and move around, or is it something that you say, no, God desires my singing, and so I sing and I worship in it? Do you attentively listen to his word preached, or do you constantly glance at your watch and wonder, I wonder if they're starting the Super Bowl countdown? I wonder if the chicken's going to be hot at Buffalo Wild Wings. See, quickly you realize where you are. And I'm, I'm picking on worship, not because it's the only thing. It's because you're sitting here and we're engaged in this. And so we're evaluating, does our lives exemplify truth or does it really show that we believe false teaching? Expand that and take a hard look at the habits and priorities of life because your life will reveal if you are a false follower. So ask yourself this does my life resemble the life of a false follower? Worst, or woost? Ken Woo states in summary, thus Christianity is spoken against by the world by the reason of the ungodly lives of professing, those are people who say they're Christian but not, and he says, and alas, sometimes of possessing Christians. Sadly, the, those who don't believe in the church that are following false teaching who profess Christ, give a bad testimony to Christ, and it undermines the church and its testimony. And then as a believer, we sit there and we say, oh, those terrible people. I wish they would get saved and get right. But the reality is this, as believers, we look like false followers and we undermine the name of Christ because we follow false teaching. And and right now you might be wondering, well, Kenny, who is the whom? Who, Who undermines it? Who ultimately is responsible for that defamation, the false teacher or the false followers? Who gets the blame? One commentator engaged with this conversation and came to the same conclusion I was coming to. Now, my conclusion is he's referring to the false followers, actually. We know the false teachers are bad. The false followers are what defame the name. He made this point. Well, the reality uh, that really is, is it takes followers to add weight to false teaching. Otherwise, it's just a one-off situation. You take one crazy person on the streets of New York with no one listening to him, and I doubt he's defaming the name of Christ that much. Take that same crazy person in the stadium of the New York Yankees, and you have it filled with people listening, and it's false teaching, and now suddenly it's defaming the name. What's my point? They both stand guilty of maligning the name of Christ. Followers, though, are what puts weight behind false teaching. Where does the weight rest? With false followers. Followers. we must remember something, and this is important, that the persistent goal of the false teachers is greed. It's for fame or for fortune, the result being that followers are manipulated. The first part of three, and through covetousness shall they with feign words make merchandise of you, or ESV words it this way, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. And that's exactly what the other one was saying. Basically, their goal is to take advantage of you for gain false teachers aren't pure of heart. You might think, like, oh, Kenny, I, I know some Muslims, and they're, they're good, honest people. They just believe the wrong thing. Well, trace their false teacher to Muhammad. Read a little bit about Muhammad, and he came up with this garbage, and it was all for his personal gain. It was to take over. It was to be the, one of the most, and I don't not trying to condemn him, but I am condemning him. He's burning in hell right now because he was an unbeliever, and he was a vile, wicked person. You take the worst types of sins that people do, and he did those. Why did he come up with this stuff? He was a nobody, and he fell asleep in a cave, and then he thought Gabriel was talking to him, and he wrote a bunch of things down, and then he got a couple people to follow him, and then he kind of apologetically lived until he got enough people to follow him, until they could pillage anything coming in till they finally could take over a city, and suddenly all the things changed. Gabriel kept talking to him, died in his 60s, and he was just a wicked, vile person. Now you fast forward and you see the danger of false teaching. you got people who believe that. They seem so sincere. What do they believe? False teaching. Who started that false teaching? He did. Why did he do it? To gain fame, fortune, or influence. You can expose the heart of false teaching if you just trace it back and see what goes on. The base or driving motivation of false teaching is greedy desire, fame, fortune, power, or control. Paul warns constantly of savage wolves coming in to consume the flock. He says that in Acts towards the end, 20, speaking to the Ephesian elders. He says, be careful because people are going to come among you and they're going to devour the flock. He speaks further on. He makes abundantly clear that he's never taught or served with a desire for worldly fame or gain. After he's done warning about it, he says, I've never done anything for covetousness or gain. And no one would accuse Paul of that. In Thessalonians, he says that we didn't come here for money. We came here to preach the truth. The opposite is true of false teachers. They come in to consume, to gain followers, to manipulate and destroy. This is the reality of false followers. There will be many. They malign the testimony of Christ and they are manipulated by false teachers. So how to know If you're one of the many, just look at what you read, how you live your life, and what teaching you enjoy. If you're listening to Puff Peace preaching or reading Puff Peace spiritual books and articles, ignoring convicting truths in Scripture, so if you read God's Word and you're convicted, you're like, "Ah, I don't want to do that, I just want to move on, or you find the things that people say and you find ways that they can make you feel good, or you make sure you read the articles or read the people that make you feel good. If you seek that kind of preaching, reading conviction that, that elevates or affirms every non-biblical decision you make, that makes you feel good about your worldly decisions in life, child, be assured and be aware you are being deceived. You're being tricked. You're being manipulated. And actually, sometimes I think that's helpful for us to realize it's not just how I interpret Scripture, but you're being duped into looking at Scripture the wrong way for someone else's gain, and it's because your own sinful heart has an itching desire to hear those things. Second Peter is a letter of caution, a warning to the church to look out for the wolves entering that want to come in and destroy truth to lead astray. In chapter 2, Peter goes on the offensive to expose who they are and how sneakily they have worked their way into our lives and thinking. Peter wants us to see the truths about false teachers and act discerningly concerning them. So I ask two questions to close out. Ask yourself this, am I one of the many? He says there's many that are coming in. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about many that will follow from church. This is best answered by truly examining your life and priorities. Take your life, put it against God's word, and when it doesn't align, you are being deceived. You're not just going your way. It's not you in the world, you against the world. It's actually you following the world. Suddenly it takes all the pride out of being deceived, doesn't it? And that's the goal. Examine your life against scripture. and When it doesn't align, you're being deceived. You're the manipulated one you're tricked. And then following that, ask this other question, am I deeply discerning knowing God's word clearly and profoundly? Because here's the reality, you need to to know his word in a deep real way. The Christians that are deceived over and over again take their plow and they stick it in 4 inches deep and that's all they do. I spent a lot of time working in Central America work with a lot of pastors. It's in the hundred plus number of people. Number one problem, discernment. Number one issue, they don't stick the plow in. I go there and I preach expositorily and trust you me, they look at me like they're chewing on wood because they're not used to that diet at all. Why? Because they've been taught shallow, 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 And my warning is this, you will be deceived at some point. You are susceptible to it because as a believer, if you're going to battle this correctly, you must know God's word profoundly and clearly. say, Kenny, I I don't read that well or I don't study that well, I read too many things about people that just get a Bible and all they do is read it, read it, read it, read it, and you'll be shocked how much they know of God's Word and how much that Word is imprinted on their life and how they live their life. I would drive you to be in His Word and know it deeply because that's the only way to avoid being deceived or engaging in self-deception. This morning, I had the privilege of teaching first through third grade I'm sure every other teacher hated it because I'm way too loud. Maybe even the adults above me were like, yep, see, you like that lesson. You didn't get any of the candy, but you heard me. See, it's like really, that's like a double negative right there. At least the kids got candy at the end. I didn't shout this one, but I challenged the first through third grade to read the Gospel of John for themselves. I'll be preaching on John towards the end of this year. It's my goal and I want them to start reading it, and I want them to ask me questions, and I want to engage with it. Why? Because they're not too young to dive into the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John has a one point. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why do I want them to read the Gospel of John? Because I want them to get that point. Know God's Word deeply. Dive into it. You need to be uh, buried in it, N- constantly reading it. I know we've been saying this, and I realize I typically always say this in December and then assume we're all doing just a phenomenal job for 12 months. I'm saying it now, and I'm constantly saying it because you need to be in God's Word. That's the truth of false teachers, false teaching, and false followers. Are you one of the many? Check out your life. That answers the question. You don't want to be one of the many? Get into God's Word and know it deeply. Understand it. Go ahead and ask questions. There's people around you that want to sharpen and help you grow. Get into a quad and study the pursuit of holiness. Be connected to God's body and God's purpose. Let's pray together. Father, well, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together to study your Word. We're so grateful. Peter is, is uh, almost, it's just, Doesn't seem to be as as deep as Paul sometimes, and then suddenly you realize how deeply he goes. Uh, Just a conversation with the church, just a letter to encourage them, to caution them, and then you realize how deeply and profoundly he is warning us against false teaching, against false teachers, and actually warning us about how easily we want and become that false teacher. How ultimately false teaching denies your authority. And that if we look at the heart and soul of it, any false religion is attempting to deny your authority, uh, to deny your way or tweak your way. And when we look at our own lives and how we respond to truth and what we say and what we do, we start seeing that they all have a base of denying your authority. We excuse our behavior because we want to be in charge. We make excuses for our behavior because we don't want to change to align with you. And so, Lord, as we look at false teachers and work through the rest of Second Peter, but also as we walk into this week, give us insight into our lives where we've been rebellious, where we've taught ourselves a lie, we've given ourselves permission to sin, where we've undermined your authority. Help us to recognize that you are in charge. We submit to you 100% and that you call us to obedient action in life. Help our lives to shine a light on your truth and not distract from it. And help us to realize the danger of false teachers and teaching, no matter how close we are to that person, no matter if we are that person, that it's wicked and it's wrong, and that it must change because we destroy the testimony of Christ in this world by how we ignore your truth and what you said. In your precious and holy name, amen.